Welcome to On the Side with Jackie London, a BS-free podcast where we're talking all things food, nutrition, and wellness to help you build healthier habits that stick. As a registered dietitian, author, journalist, and former clinician turned content creator, I've heard and seen it all. Join me each week as I debunk diet myths, explore the latest wellness trends, and answer all of your pressing listener questions. Plus, we'll hear from a guest who will kick off each interview weekly with a soup-to-nuts rundown and, okay, sometimes analysis of what they're eating, cooking, ordering in, or where they're dining out with tons of delicious ideas, lots of laughs, and plenty of pro tips in between. The one thing I can actually guarantee, I'll serve up tangible, actionable strategies to help you apply the science behind what works to what works best for you. Hello, my favorite listeners. How are you guys? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of On the Side with Jackie London. I am very, very happy to share that today we're going solo. We're going rogue. I am answering three of your most pressing listener questions. Two of these actually came from Instagram at Jacqueline London RD. If you're not already following me on Instagram, please do check that out. But Another one of these came via email. They are all three amazing questions from different people from different walks of life. I think they really meet the moment in different ways. The first question that I am talking about today is intermittent fasting, 16-8. What does that actually mean? What is a 16-8 time restricted eating schedule? What does that mean? And is it good for your health? I'm also going to talk about the idea of how, where, and what to know about when looking for a practitioner to help you um, start making food choices that are aligned to your health related priorities and goals and what the difference is between working with a dietitian versus working with a therapist and why they're both important, but some may have some nuances that may be beneficial for you, what to look for when you're seeking professional help and what to know before you go in. And I honestly, I've got to say, I'm quite proud of the answer to that one because I really went into detail about some of the things that I've encountered lately, I mean, certainly since the start of the year with friends, with colleagues, with clients about some things that I've been hearing that are kind of a little bit wonky, a little disturbing to me about how they've been treated by practitioners. And and often it's just a question of knowing what to ask. So we go into all of that, what to ask, what to know, and how to approach any session with a new practitioner, especially a dietitian or a therapist, and how to sort of set yourself up for success. And then the last thing that we talk about is postpartum nutrition, a couple of things to think about, a couple of things to ask for, and how to approach your eating schedule, your new life as a mom. If you are a mom listening to this, power to you. You're my hero and a badass, and I'm proud of you. If you are anyone anywhere listening to this, you are also a badass, and I'm proud of you, but for different reasons, all right? Thank you for being here. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you do, please let me know by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Spotify, on Apple, on iTunes, on whatever podcast platform you so happen to be listening to this episode right now on. I would love to hear from you, and of course, please reach out on Instagram at JacquelineLondonRD. Again, All three of these questions have come up on Instagram. The postpartum one was via email from a long lost friend, but has also come up in my Instagram DMs. So it's definitely relevant. I am 
usually looking to answer the things here, the questions for you guys that I think are most relevant and timely, but also provide as much information that this long form setup can possibly give to me. So without further ado, here is today's episode answering your three pressing listener questions. Feel free to reach out to reach me anytime on Instagram at Jacqueline London RD. All right, I'll see you on the other side. Let's start with our first question today. I got this one on Instagram and it's such a good question and it really bears a lot of or really requires a lot of kind of deeper analysis and the actual time and thoughtfulness to speak about it rather than to type what I could fit into an Instagram comment. So I'm going to share the question with you guys here and then I'll get into the answer and some of the nuances that are so layered and so multifaceted and how I would generally approach going about doing this for yourself or applying this advice in real life. Okay. So the question that I received on a post on Instagram was, finding local support can be useful when changing one's lifestyle rather than a temporary change, aka a weight loss diet. First of all, right there, can I just say, I love that. Good for you, girl. Okay. Then the question goes on. I realize this is a nuanced question with a nuanced response. Take eating disorder off the table, dealing with habited behavior. One, what kind of professional would be a good option under these conditions? An RD, a therapist with expertise in food habits, or what? And two, what kind of questions can or should one ask to parse out if the professional is the right one? Or maybe how to know if the professional isn't the right one? Oh, I really can't even tell you how much I love this question. I mean, honestly, I I feel like so many of us should be asking this question more often and yet somehow we aren't. But here's where I want to start with all of this. So to answer the first part of this question about what kind of professional would be a good option under these conditions, I think it it always is going to come down to two major factors. The first one of those is going to be your personal intention, right? So if you have been to therapy before, let's say, if you currently have a therapy practice, and you are aware of the fact that you are making food choices based off of an emotional eating habit that you've just kind of developed over time, right? Like you feel bored, you go to the pantry, you start snacking. We've all been there, right? Or you feel stressed and you go to the pantry, you feel sad, you feel uh, angry, you feel anxious, right? Like there's just so many or all of those emotions all at one time, right? Like it doesn't have to be one. None of those are mutually exclusive, right? So I think this is a huge part of understanding what your personal intention is when you are feeling a certain way around food, right? So I I often talk about how food is connection, but food can also be connection in ways that are not so positive, right? Like sometimes we have food associations that just kind of trigger us or make us feel like we're doing something wrong or just remind us of an occasion that we really hated, right? So I think it's, it's a question about your personal intention when you're making food choices. If you have recognized already that you feel like you are making food choices from an emotional place. Or if you have noticed that you are making food choices out of a lack of clarity, 
Those are two huge reasons why I would advocate for seeing a dietitian. And and by the way, I want to say that as a sort of fundamental baseline to all of this, I'm a huge proponent of therapy. I love my therapist. I look forward to my weekly therapy sessions, right? So there's plenty of reasons to be, to have a regular therapy practice, whether that is, you know, there's lots of different types of therapy. There's therapy podcasts. There's lots of different resources for finding a therapist and for finding the right therapist. So I think I I am saying all of this with the added layer and knowledge of what it means to, to work with a registered dietitian, right? Is that I think there are two main reasons why you would want to start with an RD versus starting with a therapist when it comes to creating a better habit or or healthier habits about and around food. And that is the first is to help you get focused with that intention and that intentionality that would probably be in concurrence with a regular therapy practice, right? It would mean like you are regularly seeking the advice of a therapist and working with a therapist about what those underlying issues are, those emotional issues are that are kind of bubbling up for you that are causing you to run to the fridge, right? On the other hand, you know, at the same time, if if that's available to you based off of insurance, based off of where you live, right? That's where I would say that finding a dietitian that you can work with at the same time can help you refocus and reprioritize how you want to approach having a sort of healthier pattern of eating, but also establish some of those habits that can actually help you self-monitor a little bit better. Because it's really, really hard to actually get in touch with some of those deeper, more layered feelings or more complex emotions that are playing into your emotional eating, let's say, when you're not doing so from like a pretty biochemically, biologically, physiologically stable place, right? So like if you are, this is like one of my classic examples, but like let's just say you haven't eaten anything all day, right? You're fasting or you just had such a busy day and you're running around and you think you had part of a breakfast bar this morning before you got your kids out the door, but now you don't even know what time it is or where you are or where you are in space or what's happening, but you're starving. But you're also stressed, right? And then you feel like, oh my God, I'm so stressed. And then you just find yourself like, answering emails late night, burning the midnight oil and just like ordering Postmates and rummaging through the pantry and you're eating everything in sight and then you feel horrendous, but but you're not really sure exactly where that came from. There is something that happens that is biochemically related, but also it started with the habit of not having something that was ready and waiting for you in the morning that was easy to prepare so that you could take it with you on the go. You didn't have like a schedule in place to help you stay on track with those regular food decisions, and you didn't know what you're going to have for dinner in advance, so you wound up just eating the contents of your pantry, and then you add on that layer of stress. It's going to be kind of difficult to figure out which one starts where, so when I'm approaching this with clients and and when I'm approaching this as a registered dietitian and not as a psychoanalyst, not, not as a licensed social worker, I am looking at this from both the biochemistry standpoint and from the eating patterns, eating behaviors, and putting some rituals, routines. I, I like to think about it as flexibility within a framework, right? When you're working with a therapist, the difference would be that you're kind of getting at the root of some of those other things that are bubbling up for you, some of the other feelings that are 
are bubbling up for you, so some of those real-time, real-life emotions that are causing you to feel out of control around food, if, if that's something that's happening for you. But you're, you're not necessarily getting those habits, those plans in place. You're not going to sit down with a therapist unless you're really doing some kind of like CBT work. But even in that case, that's not really going to be focused around food, right? So it's really, it's really looking to establish those patterns, those plans, that general framework to help you establish how you want to start prioritizing your personal health and making food choices that reflect that. And therefore, that might bring into focus whether or not you need to seek additional help from a therapist. It can also totally work in reverse, right? You could start with a therapist and find that that you start to feel better, but you still aren't really sure where to start when it comes to making food choices. All right. So I've covered that part of it. The other thing that I think is really near and dear to me personally and professionally and has been really the foundation of my whole career is really the kind of pseudoscience and disinformation that's out there as it relates to nutrition and health and well-being. And I say that because, you know, I spent five plus years in media debunking myths. I wrote a book all about debunking diet myths. I am mostly started this podcast to talk to you about (laughs) the bogus myths that trip us up when it comes to making healthier food choices and establishing healthier patterns and routines. And I think a huge part of that, you know, I've heard a lot throughout my career that that information doesn't necessarily change behavior. And while I think that might definitely be true, and I've I've certainly seen that to be true or found that to be true in different areas of my life, I I really think there's so much confusion in the area of nutrition and health. And I think to some extent, it's almost like, like nutrition as a science, because it incorporates so many different types of science into one, it's often really abused and, and misused. And it's it's really mischaracterized as being, you know, half the time you're treated, if you're a dietetic intern and you happen to be listening to this, you may be treated like you just cooked all of the meals in your hospital or as if you're just there to, to serve the meals, right? Like not that you took three semesters of chemistry, organic chemistry, biochemistry, right? Like there's just so many different layers. On the other hand, sometimes you will be in a clinical setting and you will be the main focus star of the show, but then you leave the hospital and all of a sudden you personally don't even know how to feed your family because you work so deeply in parenteral nutrition or enteral nutrition, right? Like there's many, many different career paths for dietitians and therefore we work all over the place. We're everywhere and nowhere all at once. Whereas content creators, well, wellness influencers come in all shapes and sizes and all different forms, and they live on different platforms. They live on your TV. They live at the supermarket in the form of some of the marketing claims that are allowed to actually be on your food products. They live in, certainly, they're deep in Instagram (laughs) and TikTok, right? And Facebook and, and all of the platforms everywhere. So, I I really think that a huge part of the reason why so many of us feel confused about what to eat, when to eat, how to eat, and how to start building routines and practices that help us prioritize our personal well-being by making more nutritious food choices and knowing exactly what those are, in 2022, that, that might be harder than ever. I personally feel like if I were exposed to the amount of information that most of us are on a daily basis without having this education and training, I I would 
I would feel powerless, right? Like I would almost feel so, like there's so many things that I could do in the name of my health that I would just say I'm doing none of them or that I would feel like there's just so many options. How do you know which one is right? So that's another reason why I would advocate for finding a dietitian in your local area, whether, or even not in your local area, maybe you work with someone virtually. There are plenty of great virtual practitioners also that can really help you kind of get started and, and start putting into place a greater framework for yourself that helps you maintain that flexibility while also maintaining a semblance of routine. By the way, guys, I just want to share with you right now, as I'm speaking into this microphone, I am literally watching some people across the street from me do a TikTok dance. Like I can see the cell phone in the window and there they are. They're just dancing in front of this cell phone. And you want to know what? Power to them because they're not dispelling nutrition advice, but they might be. That's the thing. (laughs) That's the thing. We just don't know. Because this kind of thing, this is something that happens all the time. I've actually, I've literally saw that on TikTok probably this morning was like someone that danced and then shared some kind of crazy thing that they saw on Goop or Poosh or one of these like one letter words. I don't know. Okay. All right. So to get to the, the kind of second part of the question, I actually think that to answer this question in a more effective way, and just to remind you guys, because it's been a little bit since I started recording this, what kind of questions can or should one ask to part? it out if the professional is the right one, or maybe how to know if the professional is not the right one. This is just really such a well-stated question. Okay. So of course this is hyper-individualized and absolutely everyone listening to this right now should take that with a grain of salt. Here's what I can say. A good dietitian is going to be trained in nutrition counseling and motivational interviewing, right? Like the, the things that also therapists are trained in. And so many of us spend most of our time in, in a one-on-one patient care or client care setting I should say, because patient care in an inpatient setting, you really, you have a few minutes to get in and get out and get your chart notes in. So it it can be honestly difficult, but there are still some opportunities and some moments and dietitians who work in more specialized areas of practice will have a little bit more time to speak with the patient and, and their family if you're seeing a dietitian when you are inpatient in a hospital. So that's important for me to say. But when you're working one-on-one with a dietitian in, and you're the client and you're working with a dietitian, so so many of us who work in this field are spending our time and hopefully spending our time <laughs> not even talking to you about food at first, right? Especially for the first few sessions, I'd say we're mostly spending time getting to know you, your habits, your eating patterns, your behaviors, your access to food, your access to safe food, your history, your your family dynamics, your relationship with food since you were born. I mean, obviously we're not going back that far. You probably can't remember what you liked or didn't like about formula or breast milk when you were a baby, right? I mean, I hope. I mean, if you're out there and you do remember that, call me because we got to talk. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, it's this is a tough one and it's a tough one to answer without knowing you, you, the listener, and you, the the listener who asked this question. But also as, an, as a dietitian, I, I can say that we are a tremendously helpful resource for getting started in, in any area of this. And we could certainly, and I would say this about, and I would hope that, that there are therapists out there who would say this about us as well, is that we also know our scope of practice, right? I mean, I, of course, I can't speak for every dietitian. That's certainly not true of all of us. But the scope of practice is really important. We know when to refer. At least I know when to refer. I know a lot of friends who know when to refer also. (laughs) 
<laughs> so if you need names, I can also help you with that. But I can say that that you should be with a practitioner who you feel comfortable enough with and in their presence and speaking with to know that it's okay to also say, do you think that there's someone else that might be able to help me with this as in, or do you have any dietitians that you would recommend working with? That's absolutely okay too. I mean, I think that's a huge part of the clarity component of finding the right person and debunking and de-stigmatizing some of these foods that you may have personally restricted without even knowing it, or some of the food rules that you may have that you may not even know you have, right? There's lots in there. So a major caveat here would be to think about the general energy that you get when you're walking into that room. When you are working with the right person, it should feel like someone whose skills are in some ways complementary. Skills and personality traits are in some ways complementary to yours. They should not match yours necessarily, right? Because you don't want, like if you want to come in and you want to talk about The Bachelor last night or like, I don't know, the news, which is deeply disturbing these days, or if there's something else that's on your mind and you're, you really have a personal goal, right? whether that goal is to start feeling psychologically just more safe or or whether that goal is to start eating meals and snacks and knowing which foods are more nutritious for you right like that that should be the the kind of goal but if you get into that kind of tailspin of we're only focused on the bachelor bachelor and i haven't seen us you know take a venture away from that topic since we started that might be a little bit of a red flag because it may mean that you're not complementing one another it may mean that your similarities are are too aligned and therefore you're better off as friends. And that happens. That's totally normal. All right. It's tough for me to get too specific or too granular about what exactly to look for in a professional. I would say, number one, look for someone who complements your personal style of speaking, of understanding, of learning. And I, again, like I would love to give you more tangible, tactical tips for managing that. But I think it's just worth maybe noticing or thinking about when you first walk into a room simply because, you know, we haven't met, sadly. Although, hi, mom, if you're listening, we have met. (laughs) So really, really critical to just think about what complements you, what needs are you looking to have met by working with this professional, and how can you best use the time that you have with someone who you are presumably paying for their services, right? Like you are, you are the customer, you are the person whose needs should be met. So you really want to feel both, both secure and also feel like you can speak freely and like you are with someone who truly complements personality traits of yours that, that can enhance, that can only enhance your experience of living life and learning about food and nutrition. All right. Two major red flags that I think are a little bit easier to spot and call out. So first is is a major red flag is with any practitioner. And of course, I would say this about physicians. I would say this about my own profession. I would say this about any therapist as well. Whatever, whatever it is, there are always sometimes you're going to get people who have a different style of thinking or learning, or perhaps they studied somewhere that maybe you disagree with, or I disagree with, or maybe they learned something many years ago that no longer is up to date with current research in practice application, right? So the first red flag would be if you find yourself being told to do or doing 
something that feels unnaturally restrictive versus doing something that feels challenging. Now, I say that, and even as I say those words out loud, I realize how damn fucking hard that is to notice, right? Like, what a unique nuance, right? So let me just say that again. Unnaturally restrictive versus something that feels challenging. Here's why I say this, right? Anytime you start something new, whether that's making one single dietary change or just two dietary changes that you're just like are your goals for the week. Maybe you're drinking an extra cup of water or you're adding a new vegetable to your weekly meals and snacks. Some, it's it's really hard to say how challenging those things may or may not be for a person until you really get to know them right? And what what we're kind of battling against as practitioners is that we'll often get people walking into an appointment with us saying, uh, just tell me what to eat. Or I just, I need to lose weight. I need to lose these last 15 pounds by, you know, next month. Or, oh my God, I've been overweight my whole life. I'm trying to get rid of 150 pounds. Or I just want my blood sugar to be normal, right? Like, and and it's very hard and very human for people who are, are practitioners who are in the service of others, right? Who who have made a career of being in the service of other people's health. It's very hard for us to not empathize with that and, and just say, listen, this is really going to take some time. And that is honestly the truth. And that's where I come back to unnaturally restrictive versus challenging. Anytime you're making a change, it should feel a little bit challenging. Otherwise, you're not really changing. And I know that that sounds like an Instagram meme, or maybe it's a little bit of a trope, right? But it's really true. If if anything is really worth doing and, and if it's worth doing and worth doing well and in a way that actually takes your life to, to sort of like the next level, I mean, for, for lack of better phrasing there, right? Like if it's, if you're going in the direction that you want to go, it should be a little bit challenging. It should not be so overwhelming or feel like an Olympic sport or feel like something that you, where you are constantly thinking about food because you have restricted yourself so much. So I would say that you should feel that, that kind of, you know, this is challenging. I'm doing something new. I'm establishing new patterns and routines, all of that. And, and recognize that that's scary, but like the physical signs that this might be too restrictive, really like unnaturally starving, like hungrier than you've ever been, right? Dizzy, exhausted, nauseous. That's a big one. A lot of us, myself, enthusiastically included. I feel really nauseous when I haven't had a snack in a while. (laughs) Sometimes you could just feel weak or off and not really know why you're feeling that way. Or brain fog is another really big one I hear people talking about so much. And another huge one, and and this has come up a lot in my profession in particular, unfortunately, because of some, some stuff that went down with a dietitian who was working with a supplement manufacturer that was creating some things with questionable ingredients. And, and this came up a lot. You should not be having physical side effects that feel unduly painful. So for example, you should not have unbelievable gas pains that were unexpected for you, right? You should not be trying out new supplements, new dietary supplements. No one should be prescribing you supplements before they really have a sense of your overall eating patterns and eating history and all of that, right? So you should not be walking into an appointment with a dietitian and they're automatically shilling supplements. That's a huge red flag. The other thing to say about that is that, yes, and and we talked about this on the Dr. Will Bolschwitz 
episode. If you have not listened to that episode, I would highly recommend it. And also his new book, The Fiber Fueled Cookbook, is actually out now. So as much as I would like to not keep shilling different products, (laughs) I would say that you might as well buy my book and buy Dr. B's book as well. So I would say in general, you never want to get the feeling like, how can I possibly do this for the rest of my life? This is so painful. I am bleeding every time I go to the bathroom. Huge red flag. I mean, that is like beyond red flag. That's like get yourself to the ER or or an appointment with a gastroenterologist immediately. But besides any of that, like like what Dr. B said in that episode that I'm thinking of right now is that like, yes, gas pains are normal when you start eating more fiber. Totally normal, right? But there's a difference between feeling something that's normal and new and then adjusting to it and having a dietitian who supports you by saying things like, okay, I want you to scale back on that and I want you to increase your daily fiber intake only by so much and here's how we're going to do it. And also you need to make sure that you're staying super hydrated while you start slowly increasing the amount of fiber in your diet, right? Those are like things that you would hope and expect to hear. They, they are part of medical nutrition therapy for anyone who is working with a client who's looking to increase their fiber intake, all right? So that's just one small example right there. But what I think is important is to be aware of what you know to be unnatural for you, what you know to feel extremely restrictive for you. And the other thing is that just on its face, sometimes, and I, I literally, I was speaking with a friend last week, a few days ago, whatever. That's not that's not really the part of the story. I was speaking with a friend a, a little while ago, and she mentioned seeing a dietitian who had kind of outlined for her the total number of calories that she should be eating in a day. And to me, it was right off the bat way too, way too low. The number was too low. I share that kind of little piece of information with you because I can see why this dietitian made that recommendation for for my friend. I can see why, right? First of all, she was probably told and and I'm just guessing here, but like she was probably told like my friend is is feeling a little bit like lost when it comes to, you know, practicing healthier eating patterns and feeling confident about food choices and feeling like, you know, there's been a number of different factors that have played a role in in her weight fluctuations over the years and and so she she probably was, you know, coming to this person and saying things like I I really need help, like I really don't don't know where to start. What do I do? Right. So that's, that's an important factor and, and understanding most of people who I have met throughout my profession. <laughs> I know that so many of us, like we really want to help and we want to help people get to their end goal sooner. But the big, but here is that ultimately the, the balancing act can be, if you're going way too low and something feels way too restrictive for you, my my sort of caveat or addendum to this first red flag of unnaturally restrictive versus challenging is to consider that I personally believe, like, and, and I know that many dietitians like me also feel this way. Everyone has a range, right? We all have a range. Everyone gets a range. When you're born, you basically get a range. There is no one calorie number that any of us should be hitting in a day. There is a range of, <laughs> of numbers that we should be in between, right? And some days we'll go over that. Some days we'll just automatically go under that range, but we should be given a range. So if you feel like you're being given a number or a, dare I say, points, a mark to hit, right? 
that's a red flag. That may be too restrictive for you. You should be given a range in which you can operate. Or many practitioners, Brenna O'Malley, who was on the podcast recently, like there's many practitioners and, and sometimes depending on the client, myself included, like who will not give you calories to begin with, like ever, right? Because we, we don't want to speak about numbers so much as we want to speak about foods. So take that with a grain of salt. But if you are getting a calorie recommendation, make sure that you are getting a range and not a single target. That's a huge red flag. All right. The other thing that I would say that is a big component of that and and another red flag that I think is worth calling out is when you're working with someone who maybe presents themselves as a certain type of practitioner and creates dependence on a device or an external platform of some kind, like the scale, right? That can be triggering for so many people. And I feel like, you know, to some extent, the reason why I have often said or been known to say that so many programs or or diets in general are are kind of rigged from from both my clinical and professional experience is that they're intentionally too restrictive because they're developed using clinical trials that last for only a set period of time. And they're not designed to help you make lifelong changes or establish patterns and routines that last. They're not designed to teach you about you, and they're not designed to teach you about food and nutrition. Those are two huge factors that play a role in how successful you personally will be on any new eating plan or style of eating or any of that, right? How you respond personally, and only you can answer that, and also how how long can you possibly keep this up, right? And that's why it all comes back to challenging, but not unnaturally restrictive. All right, my my last kind of red flag on this topic is is just plain and simple. And this one should be pretty clear, but it's one to just call out to start paying attention to. If you get a bad vibe, then this is not the person for you. And I know that sounds a little woo-woo, but it is a, a really real thing. <laughs> if you've had a session or two or three with a practitioner and you don't feel like you can freely express yourself, you feel judged in any way, or you feel like you're just not being heard, your needs aren't being clearly communicated back to you or expressed back to you, even if someone is using different words, that that's totally fine as long as you feel like you're being heard or understood, right? But you want to make sure that that someone that you are working with understands or at least communicates some degree of understanding that they know what your personal goals are and what your personal needs are. Now, the right person, I would argue, will often ask follow-up questions about those goals so that we know where to start and how to approach working together. But you don't want someone who kind of prescribes a plan and sets you free, right? Like that's another sort of caveat, addendum, add-on, bullet point to this red flag, right? Like you you want someone who wants to be a collaborator and who is clearly communicating that they understand what your needs are, then it's time to find somebody else, right? Sometimes even in the best settings and with the best people, the fit can actually just be wrong right? Like the vibe can just be off and that is okay because we are not for everyone, right? I mean, everyone is not for everyone. If that were true, then, you know, we'd all be milk toast. It's just a bore, right? There's more fish in the sea, so to speak. <laughs> so then I would say that my best advice, if you're in that scenario would be to take a page from my amazingly wonderful guest last week, Tony Marinucci, and consider what you can learn from that experience. Take note of what you liked and what you didn't like, if you liked anything, which you may not, okay? Take note of what you didn't like 
And make sure that you consider that going into your next appointment with someone else. I would not, I would really, really not want a bad experience with one person to turn you off completely to the idea of seeking help from a professional practitioner. I really just, that just hurts my soul. And I I just feel like there are so many great practitioners of nutrition science, dietitians out there that that can really help you get where you want to go. I just think that sometimes we treat the whole idea of nutrition and health as being something that is ancillary or something that we, that there's got to be a way to figure this out online for free, right? Like I hear that so often. I wish I didn't, but I do. Remember that this is a complex science, but it's a science and an art, right? So, and the art part of this is you finding a person who fits with your general vibe and who meets your personal needs. And that cannot be, you know, summarized in data points, or I can't really articulate that for you about what that's going to feel like, because that is going to be uniquely personal to you. But if you don't get a good vibe, if you leave in tears, if you leave feeling completely confused, if you leave feeling like you just weren't heard, and that fucking sucks, I hate that feeling, right? Then that's not the right person for you. So it's time to to kind of reassess, reevaluate, and start looking elsewhere. All right, so here we go. We've got what is a 16-8 fasting diet and what do you think about it? All right, I mean, it's hard for me to not express the disdain, the deep disdain. No, I'm just kidding. Not for you, dearest listener slash Instagram follower. This one also came from Instagram. And I really, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. I love getting questions, but I, I'm just sort of frustrated at the idea that you know, in a world where we have so many problems with food cost and food access that we also, you know, in an attempt to kind of solve for some of our nutrition-related confusion and some of our personal health-related battles that we have come to this place where where we are literally choosing to go without food for 16 hours at a time in, in the hope that this will work for either health related, chronic disease related risk reduction, or that it will help us lose weight. All right. So here's my overall take. Let's start with first, what is a 16-8 diet? What is the 16-8 fast? It really isn't all that novel from some of the general principles of, of sort of like prehistoric existence, right? Like hunt, gather, eat during daylight, fast, sleep, and mate during darkness, right? But in 2022, it's better summed up as time-restricted fasting. You basically spend 16 hours of the day consuming air, water, unsweetened beverages. Some of these I've seen include like black coffee. And this is all done in an attempt to either achieve better health or lose weight. And for the remaining eight hours of the day, you're allowed to eat food. And, And even if you're kind of opting in on this like AP class of fasting, you're basically eating foods in many cases and in many types of time-restricted fasting. You're eating these higher fat foods in an attempt to stay in ketosis, which is a metabolic state that kind of mimics starvation in which you use your body's own fat stores for energy instead of sugars, instead of glucose. Basically, I, I would say 
you know, honestly, there are pros and cons. And if I, if I had to, obviously, you know, my disdain is on the side of the cons, but if I had to give the idea of fasting a pro, I would say this, and this is where I think so many of us could stand to really listen in and lean into this concept, which is that the time window can have a ripple effect on other things that we do right? So if you have like a window of time to do something, right? Like in the old days, (laughs) in the olden days in 2019, we used to like go to work during the day, right? And the expectation was that most of your work at the very least would be done at your place of work. And now, you know, since things have gotten kind of wonky and people are either back at the office or they are no longer at an office, there's lots of different ways of working now. There's lots of new ways of working now. You know, we, we just kind of live differently. So work can happen at any time wherever and however. That obviously has major benefits, right? But that also can have major downsides. And the same is true of mealtimes. So the the pro, the main pro that I can see from a scientific standpoint is not from a biochemical or, or biochemistry type of scientific standpoint. It's from the behavioral science standpoint, which is that when you give yourself a window to do anything, often it creates this kind of like false, but but helpfully false barrier around when you're supposed to do something. And then what happens in that time and space when you're not doing that thing, in many cases, that might mean that you're going to bed earlier. It might mean that you actually have time to get your kitchen cleaned up rather than, you know, making a late dinner and then being like, ah, fuck it. I'll clean it up tomorrow morning right? There's like other things that come as a result of cutting yourself off at a certain time of day that I can see why there may be a benefit that, or that so many people rather, particularly guys on Reddit, let me tell you, there's a lot happening on Reddit in this space, in the fasting space. And none of it is particularly good. But I would say that like, that's, that's where I really see a true positive side of fasting is that by using time as the manipulating factor, you allow yourself to say, all right, I'm done at this time of day. So kitchen's closed. I'm going to bed. From a purely biochemical standpoint, it doesn't really matter if you eat later right? It just doesn't. I mean, what what ultimately it's all going to come down to is calories in, calories out. Now, how we slice that cake is going to look different, right? Because for some of us, if you, let's say, have, if you're, if you're prone to acid reflux, for example, then you already know that eating late at night can, might be tricky for you because when you lay down too close to mealtime, that causes, that can trigger your reflux. In a similar way, you know, there's lots of other reasons why so many of us may need to eat outside of an (laughs) eight-hour window, right? So that's why I am ultimately not a fan of this, right? Because there is no biochemistry that really stands in support of there being a benefit to fasting, not in humans at the very least, right? We have seen some potential benefit for longevity, for chronic disease risk reduction in mice, But this has yet to be studied for safety, efficacy, and really for durability, right? Like for how long, what is the duration? Like how long do you need to be on this kind of a schedule in order to see any potential benefit? And frankly, this is the tricky one that no one wants to say, but I'm going to say it. How the fuck would you know? You know what I mean? Like at the end of your life, are you going to be like, you know what really helped me get to 85 or 105? fasting for that five years of time that I did that, right? I mean, how are you going to know? 
Because there's other reasons and there's other lifestyle factors that may play a role in your physical health and your chronic disease risk. But ultimately, what what really what we know plays a major role is stress. It's it's obesity. It's also other factors that contribute to your risk of heart disease, including saturated fat intake, sodium intake, and and added sugar intake. It's also how physically active are you, right? And so and so knowing all of those other things, it's very hard for me to stand behind the idea of a fast, especially if that gets in the way of you doing other things that might be beneficial to your health. Case in point, I personally am a nighttime exerciser. I love it. I like to be at the gym when no one's there. And really, <laughs> that pretty much can only happen at like in my apartment building. That can only really happen at nine o'clock at night. So that's the time that I like to be there the most. I enjoy it. I know it's good for my health. It also helps me sleep better at night. But if I were to say to you that like, or if I were to say to myself rather, that I can't have a snack after that because I'm outside of the window, well, that's insane. I mean, I wouldn't want to put that kind of arbitrary restriction on myself, particularly if I didn't get to have my dinner before right? So like that's where the the restriction is only as beneficial to you as your personal lifestyle and your other health promoting patterns, right? So if it means that you happen to wake up later and you're trying to like fit into this 16-8 schedule, that's not really going to work for you. The other thing that I, I really just would be remiss not to say about fasting in general is that it does have notes, has a tinge of disordered eating patterns. And I I know that there's a lot of pushback around that. And I understand why, right? Because it's not an actual necessarily, or it's not necessarily a calorie restriction that you're doing. It may, you may not even be doing a type that's like completely restricting carbohydrates, or you may be doing that type. Whatever it is, you may not feel like you are doing something that is in the vein of disordered eating. You may feel like it's truly health promoting. But the thing is that if your diet puts limits on how you can live your life, that is disordered. There is a degree to which that is disordered. It is, of course, always going to come with the caveat that your intention matters. Your intention going in matters with anything, but particularly it really matters when it comes to putting an arbitrary restriction on the times of day that you can eat. The other component of this that I should flag is that in practice, in my clinical experience, and also using research in real life practice with clients, I have found that the single most beneficial thing or piece of advice that I have given to clients that often starts to set them up for weight loss success or just generally whatever it is, if it's diabetes management if it is reducing risk of heart disease, if it is managing chronic kidney disease, right? Like there's lots of ways that I have found this to work, but the single most significant piece of advice that I can give is to eat consistently. So you can see how intermittent fasting might kind of like be in the way of that, (laughs) right? And, And the reason for that is because I've found that with most of my clients, my experience has been that we are not eating enough at our meals and snacks throughout the day. We're not eating the right type of nutrients. We're not combining satiety-promoting nutrients that are designed and put there on this planet to help us feel satiated, stay energized, and feel fuller longer, right? And then on top of that, we're not 
taking the time to stay hydrated, to stay properly hydrated. And we're also not really focusing on that consistency factor and how that might play a role in why we find ourselves in this position of feeling so out of control around food, right? Like, oh, I just can't stop eating late at night. Oh my God, I don't know why. I feel like I'm a bottomless pit, right? Like, and these are major factors. So when you're fasting for a huge part of the day, you can see how this sets you up for a cycle of binge and restrict, which again, yes, that is a disordered pattern of eating. Binge, restrict, restrict, binge. All of that comes at a cost, right? And the longer that a a certain type of fasting goes on, the more we can start to see some of these notes. Again, I say notes because they're, they're sort of like hinted at in research, although I do not, I will say very clearly, we do not have certainty around any of this research because there simply isn't enough research on the topic. But there are notes within the research that show up occasionally. And when you're someone who has poured over a ton of research and also practices that research in real life, you start to notice that certain things keep coming up. And and that thing in this case is this. There, there can be hormonal changes that take place that start to confuse your hunger and satiety hormones. That is true when you are in a starvation state. That is true when you go from eating consistently and eating a combo of both protein, fat, and carbs. It's also true when you go for prolonged periods without eating, eat a ton, and then stop eating again right? There are notes of, of these hormone shifts that can cause metabolic abnormalities later on. They can put you at a greater risk for chronic disease, and they can also make it honestly harder for you to lose weight in the long run. And I think that's probably the most important thing I can say here also, because I think a lot of people are choosing fasting, you know, saying it's a lifestyle, but really it, it's a diet. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to lose weight. I, I can't imagine, you know, I know there's a lot of controversy on that. And frankly, we don't have enough enough minutes in this episode to cover it today, but we can talk about it on our next solo chat. But I've got to say, like, the issue here is that if it's a short-term weight loss goal that you're after and you wind up making it harder for yourself to lose weight in the future, can you imagine how debilitating and, like, destabilizing that is? That's just not fair to your future psychological health right? So I'd say I'd so much rather you eat consistent meals and snacks throughout the day, stay hydrated. And when I say consistent, I mean, eat every three to four hours. You probably need a snack right now, Harriet. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say it's a high probability you need a snack or a drink. And then the other thing I would say is that to whatever extent you feel like you can use this concept of the time window, go for it, right? Because that idea of setting up these kind of like flexible frameworks for yourself without the rigidity around avoiding the kitchen after 8 p.m. or 6 p.m. or whatever it is, without that rigidity, if there's a way that you can say, all right, I'm not going to do X so that I can do Y, that's a compromise. That's not a restriction right? And there's a really big difference between those two things. So keep that in mind. I think when it comes to fasting and especially when it comes to 16-8 fasting, that is the one kind of takeaway that I think we can all learn from and think about and consider how we might incorporate a little bit more of that. All right. If I'm going to choose to do X today, what am I going to gain from that? Right? And if you can't find an answer to the what am I going to gain from that, then it probably isn't for you. All right. I hope that helps. Okay. My next question is about postpartum nutrition. And honestly, before you hit pause on this episode, I've got to say, you know, if this, yes, this is 
especially true for new moms, okay? So if you are a woman who is either pregnant, lactating, or you're thinking about becoming pregnant, then this is the question for you. But if you are not, then I would say you definitely still want to listen in because I have a number of different tips in here that have come more out of the kind of like art and science, more more from the art side of, of my work as a dietitian than, than the science part that I think are really helpful for anyone and everyone who is a caregiver. So I would definitely stick with it. All right. So my first tip for new moms, number one, out of the gate, you got to have a hydration plan. Okay. Even if you are not breastfeeding, right? It's still absolutely mission critical. Your body has just been through a trauma. That, And when I say trauma, I, I am using a lowercase t, and I am saying that for some, this may be a big t trauma, but, but for most of us, it is a small t trauma. And it is simply just, I, I use that in a very clinical uh, sense of the word, which is that anytime you have anything stressful happen physically, right? Like running a marathon and finishing it is also a small trauma to your body, right? Like, so so there's plenty of ways that we undergo this kind of thing in our lifetime, but it is a true unique miracle to give birth. So, I mean, go you, first of all. <laughs> like, let's just take a minute to just yell what a badass you are for being a woman and delivering a baby. Okay. Now that we got that out of the way, you got to have a hydration plan because any type of physical stress is going to increase your fluid needs. And I know that it probably sounds a little bit obvious and and that it may sound like something that is like a drum that I beat till my dying day, but I do. And that's because subclinical dehydration easily the number one issue, the number one thing I hear about from every woman I've ever worked with postpartum, whether she's breastfeeding or not. So if you are breastfeeding or then I would, I would definitely say you are going for at least, and, and granted I say at least, and then I also give the caveat that this is going to be different for everyone, but, but just to give you a benchmark of where you want to be around 14 to 16, maybe, maybe more like 17. It depends on where you live right? Depends on how how hot it is in your current neck of the woods, to borrow a term from Al Roker. It depends on how much you sweat. It also depends on how much breast milk you're producing, right? But as a general benchmark, just to maybe widen that range a little bit more, maybe it's more like 12 to 17 cups a day. But like, if you're someone who is already a person who is on top of their hydration and who feels like they are drinking adequate cups of fluid per day, whatever it is, right? I would say you kind of want to add uh, at least a few more on top of that. And where I would say is is the best place to make that happen is while you're pumping, right? Is to make sure. And by the way, you know, I have also heard, I am not a parent. I have heard this from many friends who have had young babies, is that it's also when you start to feel the thirstiest. So so you automatically, now that you're hearing this, if you are currently pregnant, then you know that when you're pumping, you are going to want to have a beverage on hand, right? Straws are going to be your best friend. You're going to be pumping. You're going to be probably looking at your phone, or you're going to be nursing your baby, and you're just going to be looking at that cute, adorable little face, or you're going to have bleeding nipples and be like, fuck this shit, I'm moving to formula. And all of those things are totally okay, but 
What's not okay is now that you've listened to this episode, you got to stay hydrated. So what does that mean? It can mean that you are drinking tons of water. Maybe you're adding water with a splash of lemon. Maybe you're getting some citrus in there. Maybe it's sparkling water, seltzer, club soda. The other thing that I like about the Gatorade Zero is it'll help you get back some of those electrolytes that you miss due to breast milk if you are breastfeeding or just from night sweats that come naturally with just hormone fluctuations. Extra fluids all the time. And if you're not breastfeeding, then you still are going to want to drink more water, drink more fluids than usual since your body did just do something epic, right? And that you still will probably experience some of those sweat losses throughout the day. Even if none of these things have happened, but you are still, you know, adjusting to a new life with a newborn, your body is likely in a more active state than you normally otherwise would be. And certainly if you've delivered via C-section, then you are post-surgery, so then you still need those extra fluids, right? I would say minimum for everyone is, is around 12 cups of fluid per day, and then you can adjust, you know, up to 17, 18 go crazy with those fluids after after delivery, all right? So anywhere between around 12 to, to 17 cups a day should be the goal. And again, that's also going to depend on your dietary, on your food choices, right? Because veggies and fruit do also add water to your day. So you will be good having like a fresh or frozen fruit as part of your daily meals and snacks. All right. The second thing I would say is to add nuts, seeds, and legumes. And I would say this, you want to have portable snacks and portable staples around the areas of your home that you are spending the most time. So whether that is because you are going to plan on nursing in one room or you are in the baby's room for another moment or you are in your bedroom for something or you're in the kitchen, whatever it is, wherever you are, you want to be able to have some portable snacks that work for you. And the reason why I say nuts, seeds, and legumes is because they're usually like some of those great snack products that I recommend the most often because they are the most satisfying. They combine both protein and fiber all in one little beautiful place. I also think they're really like, I'm thinking of like a nut butter when I think about things that don't require like crunching. So you're not making noise. If you're somewhere, if you're having that snack somewhere that where there's also your newborn nap is taking place, right? Like that's critical. I would also say that just having things that you can eat with one hand can be critical. And again, that's that's another one of those that I give to new moms and I also give to anyone who just feels like their life is like out of control, but like for for whatever reason or or that you're a caregiver for for anyone and any human or animal or whatever it is, or just for yourself and you're just like, I don't know how I'm supposed to do life and eat with both hands. Sometimes that happens, right? This way you're able to like quietly, stealthily pull out a little PB and J or a cup of overnight oats. Or maybe you've got one of those like to-go cups of Bob's Red Mill muesli or Cheerios and milk, which if you let them sit in the milk long enough, trust me, they get mushy and it'll be great. You won't be, you won't be crunching. You're not going to crunch and wake up that baby. Okay. Whatever you know that you already like that comes in ready to eat form or softer form, I'm a huge fan of just because A, the crunch, not for any other nutrition related reason, but just because of that disruption thing. Anything that comes in a single serve pack so that you can kind of like eat it in its own container and have it stored someplace, often at room temperature, like a bar, like a nut butter pack, or even like I mentioned, like some of those nuts and seeds, like those packs that 
that you can add to other things. That way you can stir them into cereal or into a smoothie. I also love the idea of of like some of these 100% whole grain breads and cereals that can also make for like a sandwich is really the ideal dream here, right? But sometimes the idea of making that sandwich can be overwhelming <laughs> when you're when you're in a scenario like this. If you have a partner, then I would say you want that partner to be working overtime making sandwiches. Dave's Killer Bread, one of my favorites. Ezekiel's is also one of my favorites. Arnold's sandwich bread, especially those thins. And I say that not because of the sort of implication that they're like a, a weight loss elixir somehow. But like, I say that because those thins are actually, they're super easy to hold and you can kind of make anything into a little sandwich just from having one of those on hand. All right. I also think that whether you, you know, I get asked a lot like about whether or not you as the mom should have milk, like regular cow's dairy. And that is completely up to you and your tolerance. My biggest tip would be to choose some of the higher protein options simply because, again, your body has just been through some trauma to some extent. And so you want to optimize repair by making sure that you're staying hydrated and eating adequate protein and of course eating adequate fiber. So great option would be fair life milk. And I would, I would also say that if you are someone who is lactose intolerant or avoids dairy for whatever reason, then this would be that moment to find a soy or pea based milk product that you know you like that's unsweetened because you want to make sure that you're optimizing any opportunity to get that protein in. So something like a ripple milk the unsweetened version of that is eight grams of protein per serving. Soy milk also is about seven grams of protein per serving. So these are all great options. As long as you're choosing the unsweetened version, you're basically finding something that mimics cow's milk. And I love Fairlife because of this ultra filtration process that they use. It winds up being even higher in protein. I think it's up to 12 grams of protein per cup, which is amazing. So think about that and think about how you might add that in to your day as well. The last thing that I would add to this is to just consider a couple ways that you can make meals faster, simpler, easier, how you can find a way to cut corners. I love a shortcut. I love a shortcut, whether you're a new mom, whether you're a mom of a full-ass full-grown adult, whether you are a grandmom or you're a dog mom, you want to take a shortcut sometimes. Who doesn't, right? I would say fresh, frozen veggies. Frozen veggies on their own are amazing. I love Green Giant. I love Bird's Eye. I love some of the Trader Joe's ready-to-eat meals. But the beauty of something like a, like, let's just say riced cauliflower. You guys know I talk about this all the damn time. But like riced cauliflower is perfect, right? Because you can throw it into anything. You could add it into a mix. You can use it for stir fry. You can use it as part of a saute. You can put an egg on it and call it a bibimbap. Like there's a million different things that you could do with that. But you want things that are versatile and that can be heated and eat it. <laughs> you want the flexibility to heat and eat, right? So customization is going to be key for you because you want things that you can repurpose into other meals. So I'd say that if you have a sec, if you want to, consider like a couple things that you know you like that you can make ahead and freeze, like Anything like that is an amazing asset, but I mean, who really is thinking about that before they give birth, honestly? I mean, that's a stupid recommendation, but like if, if maybe there are a few of us out there who are so inclined, I'd make sure you have some of that on hand. The other thing I would say is that, you know, when people, whether you, if you have ever experienced any type of loss 
any grief of any kind, or if you have ever experienced something momentous, whatever it is, people always ask this same fucked up annoying question that I know is well-intentioned, but it drives me insane. (laughs) That question is how can I help? What can I do? What do you need? Bitch, I don't know what I need. I don't know where my socks are right now. You know what I mean? Like it's that kind of thing. Like that drives me crazy. Here's what you need. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you what you need. You need people to bring you food. And I don't mean like cupcakes because you just had a uh, blue cupcakes. You just, you just had a baby boy. Like that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about meals. Like if this woman who was trying to bake you some cupcakes can bake the cupcakes, then she can also make you a goddamn stir fry and you can put half of that thing into the freezer for tomorrow night or the fridge for tomorrow night, right? So that's what I would say when people ask you what you need, you ask for food. And you make sure that you have that shit on hand in real food form, like real meals, real snacks, anything you can get your hands on. The other thing I would say, and this is really my last point, is to just don't forget about seafood. Salmon, tuna, shrimp, scallops, mussels, oysters. I don't know what new mom is in the mood for oysters immediately after giving birth, but I whatever. Whatever you are in the mood for, a flaky little whitefish, maybe it's a tilapia, a cod, a halibut, I don't know, for the halibut. Make sure that you've got some seafood on hand because omega-3s are always critical for you, for your newborn, and you will, of course, get those in God willing formula as well, but super important because that comes from mom's reserve of DHA as well as as the ability of your body to to use its own stores to convert the omega-3s that your baby will need inevitably in order to grow and develop. And so I think that's an important little pro tip. Of course, you will, you know, if you're not a seafood eater, you will be able to get this from other places. But I always like to add that in because I think it's an easy one to forget about, especially because some seafood-based meals often seem like they're more labor-intensive. All right. So when Sheila calls... The day after you gave birth to Timmy, you're going to say, I want a roasted salmon and send her about five, three to five, maybe just send her one, send her one recipe or don't send her fucking anything and let Sheila figure it out on her own. Okay. Ask for the salmon. You're good. Thanks so much for tuning in today to this episode of On the Side with Jackie London. If you enjoyed today's episode, please snap a screenshot of your podcast app on your phone, post it to your Instagram stories, and tag me at Jacqueline London RD to let me know your favorite takeaway from any part of the episode. If you're loving the show, if there's a topic you'd love to hear more about or a guest you'd love to listen to here, I'd absolutely love to hear from you. You can scroll down on your podcast app to where it says ratings and reviews and rate this one five stars, of course, and share your feedback. Your words might just be what the next person needs to tune in and start feeling more empowered and living better one meal or snack at a time. Of course, be sure to follow On The Side wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you won't miss out on any episodes. And remember to check us out. Check out the Q&A deep dive on the On The Side YouTube channel. This show is produced and edited by Elizabeth Evans Media Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Keep in mind that any advice provided on this podcast is based off of my clinical judgment and application of research and practice as a registered dietitian, and it should not take the place of medical advice from your own personal physician. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.